marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, KC was winning, and Garen was beginning. One Robbie going out, one coming in. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Sal Marinello. This is the Hot Corner with Coach Sal, episode 331 on the network. Before we bring in Sal, we got a number of topics today to cover. Just want to thank our 55,000 faithful subscribers, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. We appreciate your support. That push got us on the very powerful iHeartRadio podcast network. Please give Sal five stars at the end of this show. Write some great comments, ask questions, whatever you need to do. All that stuff helps us battle the analytics of the podcast world, just like they do in Major League Baseball. So with that, uh, Sal, welcome back to your show. Dave, thanks for having me. And I'm going to start off with a very unpopular hot take, I'm sure. Um, I can't stand that talking baseball song. So oh. uh, don't ever want to hear that again, please. No way. Oh, it's one of Jim Cott's. Oh, God, just please. It's gonna... a, what, a second grader write that? Come on. Give me a move on from that. It's, uh, when was that? 1912 that song was written? Well, Mickey and the, yeah, a long time ago. I don't know about <clears throat> 1912, but yeah. Long time ago. Well, I'll make a producer note here to uh, make sure that doesn't get voted in as our network song. Yeah, that, show. That, well, no, it's fine for the baseball show if the other guys, you know. But geez, come on, you, huh? Well, this is it's a end of baseball season now. We're getting to the World Series, heavy football week with college football coming on, the trade deadline coming up next week. But uh, you, you, uh, I think wanted to start with basketball this week, right? Charles Barkley on the well, top. Yeah, I just think it's his comments about this load management trend is great, and it, it you know, you know, you don't see that in the sport where you really get the stuffing beat out of you. Football, for sure, you don't see it. Uh, I don't. I can't speak a hundred percent. I'm sure at some level it might come into play a little bit in hockey. But again, I think when you look at the demands of that sport, you could almost say at some point it's warranted. I, I think hockey is extremely underrated for the brutality. And I don't mean physical guys, well, they do fight, but I'm not talking about brutal in that sense. Just in the grind, the wear and tear, the travel, the games they play, multiple games. There's no soft place to land when you get hit in a hockey game. Uh, but, yeah, I love what Barkley said. He basically said they're paying these guys $50, $60 million a year to play basketball three times a week, and they're not co-workers. I think he also referenced lawyers uh, – I'm sorry, doctors and nurses and some other difficult job employees. So I, I agree 100%. Just, Dave, imagine I, – I can't imagine what it must cost to take a family, or even if you took – you had a, a one son or daughter of, of age that could appreciate it. What it must cost to take a kid to a game with the parking, the exorbitant concession fees, and then you go and either your favorite player is not playing at home or your visiting team who you may have paid to go see won't be playing. It's just really ridiculous. Oh, yeah. We've got two boys, and my wife and I obviously played and coached 
at the college level and we like to go, our daughters like to go. So even if it just was um, myself and the two boys, you're talking about a 500 to $750 day. Yeah. So there you go. And, and, and in this day and age, who can afford that? No. Yeah. And it's, so the, the league, I think, is start to recognize it a little bit. They're not penalizing teams yet, but they've penalized the postseason awards, which have dollar amount incentives attached to it, where I forget the number, but 55 games, which isn't, I mean, there's 82 games in a season and I get the wear and tear, the grind on the body. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a stop and go sport. There's some physical play to it. Not as much as in the eighties and the nineties. I think we'll both cling to our generation there with, with the physicality of basketball during that. But yeah, I, 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 I'm glad that Barkley does call stuff out. He, of all the sports, of all the commentator, he's, he's very raw. He's not polished in what he says, but he is one of the only guys over the over this test of time that gets away with just speaking his mind. He does, and it, it's just so these halftime, pregame, postgame, and analytical shows, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, are so over the top and so ridiculous. And even the NBA, what do they have, four or five guys? And they say the same things. It's the same platitudes and cliches and excuses. Uh, it's just every time you watch them, and and I don't, I, you know, I don't watch them. You're usual. Um, usually, when I see them, I'm not in control of the remote. So you're either out at a uh, at a sports bar, or perhaps you're in someone else's home, and they're a big NBA fan. I was out the other night at the, one of the opening nights of the NBA season. They had the Knicks Celtics game on, and the bar had kind of emptied out after the game was over and they had the post game show on and it's not as many people obviously, but to say it's overkill is being kind. Oh yeah. No, it's well, you look on all the sports are, but we're talking basketball here now, but you can go through baseball and football and there's so many quality people out of the game, albeit coaching or even commentating and NBA got rid of Jeff Van Gundy, Mark Jackson, because they were challenging the front office. Uh, more than they liked the here, but there's so many quality people out, but there's so much overkill. There's like 20 coaches on the bench and there's, you know, three, four commentators during the game. And I turned the volume off during the Celtics Nick game because I, I went in used to hearing the, the back and forth with Van Gundy and Jackson, which got a little anecdotal, but they, Van Gundy would say why Jackson would tell why. And that's all I want as a, as a, as a, as a, somebody watching the game. And maybe it's cause I'm a, former coach, former player, but um, I want to know why. Hubie Brown's my favorite with that. I think he's he's the best. There's no fat in his delivery. He will he will tell you why things are going on, and that's all I want to hear. Yeah, and for a game that most of it doesn't matter, all that commentary really is wasted. Just put on the game for the last eight minutes of the of the game, and, and that'll pretty much do the job for you. So to, I can't imagine listening – to that full game and the analysis that they're giving you in the first quarter when really it doesn't matter at all. Oh, there's none. They, they, it's, it's similar to the way analytics is used in the fact that they tell you what just happened. And I don't need someone to tell me what happened. I saw it. So yeah, we watch, we watch it with the volume down. Now the bad part about that is, is that encourages Tanner now to be the commentator of the game. So um, if you ever, ever watched the game with Tanner, it's an experience in itself. Well, I mean that's what they hear, so they're gonna they're gonna. When I was a kid, Marv Albert was the craze, and we're seeing the second generation of that, and you're actually seeing the third because I think you've got 
guys like Mike Breen, who really say they modeled themselves after Marv, and obviously Marv's son is very prominent. So that was a very kind of interesting time when Marv was kind of different. He did things differently when he became the play-by-play guy and became just the dominant voice in basketball. So it was something that as a kid, I can, I remember back to when I was Tanner's, how old is Tanner now? He is, he just turned 14. Yeah. So that when I was 12, 13, 14, the 11, 12, those were the years the Knicks were dynamite. You know, they had the teams that beat the Lakers. They won two world championships and I believe a three year period. So that was a, a big, big thing to listen to those guys. So I get that. Yeah. And he's an old soul like us. So when I turn the volume down, it's like listening to myself talk about the game, which I don't, I'm in my head all day long. I don't want to hear it while I'm watching the game too. So I give him a notepad and I draw a line down the middle and he helps me with scouting reports and stuff. And I'll say, okay, you tell me what do they project and what do they protect? And that's his whole function during the game to look at the game that way. So it's a good, good tool to teach him to look at the game without hearing the noise and the input in the background. We do it with baseball as well in that regard. So, but yeah, great message by Barkley. I think load management we see with pitchers four and a third is their load management. Guys aren't playing double headers anymore. They aren't, well, they don't play them anymore, but um, I think we see load management across baseball, which we're all unsatisfied. Well, what are they being paid for? That's the bottom line. And they're being paid to play 82 games. It's not as if they signed a contract and there's some weird overtime consideration that, oh, we've added 10 games to the schedule. I mean, they play that. That's what you're supposed to play. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. And and again, it's not like a sport like football where you can't have a running back carry 40 times a game every game. And the the way football handles load management is what? They give guys time during the same game. They're never mi- missing games. That's part of being on that team, and it's part of having a, a, a the depth that you can do that. And that's really how – Football handles it. Hockey obviously has shifts. Those guys go out there and bust their chops for 30 seconds, 45 seconds, you know, a, a little longer, and then they're they're gassed. They come off. The next guy comes out. Again, watch a football game and watch the two-headed monster some of these teams have in their backfield and how their offense can adjust based on the personnel. So to, to say a guy playing 82 basketball games a year needs to sit out a certain portion of them to keep himself fresh is, is ludicrous. Yeah, and I, and I don't follow hockey as much, but and you can answer this maybe for for me. Do you see the ticky tack injuries in hockey? I, you know, football they're 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 brutal, and guys play through pain. I mean, separated shoulders. Gosh, t- as crazy as To is, whatever year the Eagles went to the Super Bowl and he was he broke his leg, like he broke his leg, and he was back playing like five weeks later. Like that's that was unheard of um, in another sport. But do you see the ticky-tack injuries in hockey like like we see in some of the – I don't think so. You know, from what I know of that community, that athletic mindset, hockey, it, no autopsy, you know, you're not sitting out. There was I, – again, I think it was Barkley talked about a, one of the NHL players had some ridiculous number of stitches and was back out on the ice. Say it was 40 stitches, Barkley said – if a NBA player had 40 stitches, he'd be out for three months or whatever long term. But that was the, the the point there. I think everybody recognizes the different sports deal with things. I've had a couple of people I've known post NFL who talk about the things they play with, things that don't show up, even show up on injury reports that would keep most people on the sideline. So 
I think it's a it's a bit of a ridiculous situation, but yeah. Now we'll we'll, we'll move topics, but I just I want to share one quick anecdote. There is a gym in America that doesn't exist anymore because they shut the program down. Toughest thing I ever saw in basketball I was at St. Anthony's gym, Bob Hurley Sr. Um, and the the player, I believe, was Robert Cheek. And, and I took Robert on a trip to China to help him get a pro contract after he graduated college at St. Bonaventure. And Robert, they lost their coach that year at St. Bonnie. He kept the team together, kept them playing. They did really well. Great leader. But when I went and watched him play um, – Loose ball, something happened. He got hit in the nose and the mouth all at the same time. Instead of falling on the ground and, and, and getting taken off the court, he moved in the direction of the action, ran off the court, rinsed his face, spit out whatever was in his mouth in the drinking fountain, and got back on defense. Um, all in the same, like, 12 seconds. And that, that to me, I was like, that's toughness. That's what I want. That's what I wanted on my teams. But, yeah, I agree with Barkley. I agree with you. I would you love- just said while we're on the subject, do you think you would see another instance like the Kurtz Schilling – even if there's some of that, uh, you know, you hear there's some legend associated with that. Oh, the bloody sock thing. Would, would that happen today? Would they let that happen today? There's, you know, I yeah. don't know. It's it, it's kind of great to see that there there was that competitive spirit and guys are willing to do that. And women play with injury too. I've coached at the college level and I know for a fact we had some tough women basketball and lacrosse players that dealt with some real painful conditions and, and other things that might have kept people on the sideline and don't want to miss games. I think I think there's some in some people's upbringing, there's the, I don't know if it's entitlement or being spoiled, where working hard and, and the stuff that comes along with improving yourself is not as accepted because a lot of the people I've seen that are naturally gifted aren't really pushed to the level they should have been early enough to make a difference. And and maybe that's the type of thing that's happening. Who knows? But yeah, I don't know. I agree. I think sports is now sports used to be, I think a, a lower middle class, um, uh, I guess a rise. That was where it was. It, it manifested itself now at a young age, lower middle class gets priced out of sports. So I think again, maybe I'm, um, I'm pointing at, at me more, but I think kids that grow up in that lower middle class environment tend to be a little bit tougher. And then now you see the money and there's, there's no question that these guys are getting guaranteed money and they're thinking like, Hey, that, where's the incentive? Uh, and and I, I brought this up. I think I'm, I don't think I got to talk to Ted Kubiak about it. I, I, I will though, but were ball players tougher when the money wasn't there when they weren't being paid with there. And I want them to get paid as much as they can. I, I really do. But was there more toughness involved, maybe because of the environment, uh, the, the demographic of where they were grabbed from? Uh, maybe because you had to show up. I, I made a thousand bucks a month, Sal, no insurance playing minor league baseball for three years. If I, there's, and I, I learned really quickly and I did it as a young kid. There's a difference between being hurt and injured and, you know, hurt. As soon as you step across that, that, that line, I don't want to hear it anymore. If you're injured, Go see the trainer. Go see the doctor. Get better. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think there's that line anymore. I really don't. I think uh, they're, they're, they're like you said. What's what's equal called load management? Yes. And I'm getting that point. They don't even let them play beyond you know their comfort level or their stretch point. They're taking them out before four and a third. That should be the new new favorite number. Four and well, a third. Well, I forget who said it. Whether it was Will or Kevin or you, but if you want to jump to baseball, those 
<clears throat> those pitchers that are going to start going, you know, five innings, four innings, six innings, they're going to start giving back some of that salary. You're not going to get the massive contract if, A, you only are thinking you're going to go six innings, and B, if they're all, the team is only looking at you to go five or six innings, it's going to change the – I would imagine it's going to change the salary structure. Again, look at what's happened in the NFL with running backs versus quarterbacks. I think I'm, I don't have the information in front of me. I know certainly the quarterbacks are exponentially more higher paid than running backs, but my sense is a good tight end and, and wide receivers are getting more across the board than than your running backs are because of how the running back position has changed. So yeah, yeah that was something I brought up on our show last couple of weeks. The the market value of pitchers is going to start resembling that of what the running backs are now. And what Will and I talked about it. Um, a little bit deeper where, you know, the running back was abused and that's what they do. They, they throw them out there and they just crush them for three, four years and then throw them away, get another one. And then now they're doing the, the, you know, tandem backfields, three backs, and they just kind of feed them eight, nine touches a piece and they pay them accordingly. And that's what I, I caution pitchers on every show this week. I would start fighting back. I would start wanting the ball, wanting to stay in. Uh, make us think about it because you're going to affect your overall salary. And you're right on it. Wide receivers are paid way more than running backs now. Um, there, there was definitely a market correction there. Watch it in baseball. There, there's no question. I think it's done. I think it's being done intentionally. And if these basketball guys think they're getting away with stuff, yeah, the ones that are getting paid now are, but they're affecting the future. And eventually, pay scales are going to drop accordingly. To right, you know, it, it's the it's the crash. It's the I'm sorry. It's the the the, the height before the crash. That's what we're we're getting at. Yes. That's right. Well, um, would you let, let's stay with the with this with the the football here. We were talking a little football. There was a nice story you sent me, um, NIL story with a was a was he a receiver with Nebraska? I know he's a player with Nebraska. Yes, uh, um, wide receiver for the University of Nebraska. And Nebraska's been not, not to, to delve into that, but Nebraska has you know had a tough a, a tough stretch here for one of the most dominant programs in college football they've yeah. really been struggling but there's a, a young wide receiver for the the huskers malachi Mal Coleman, who Mal was was a homeless kid and he's donating his his nil money so he's a kid that is it's nice to see that in encounter to some of the greediness that pervades that we see and again i'm not begrudging people for making but I think the, it's the conspicuous overconsumption in the specific, uh, and and the uh, the nature of how it's discussed that is kind of distasteful. So again, without you know, we don't have to beat a dead horse. But the kid that really could have used it the most, because on top of the fact that he was homeless, his folks, both his parents died. So, but he's donating. So he's donating that money to a variety of uh, a. a, a a variety of causes. So again, yeah. just a, a hat tip to that kid, someone to root for. Where's number three for the Huskers? So if you catch a Nebraska game, applaud number three every time he does something. Yeah, Malachi Coleman, and he was in foster care. He basically took care of his younger sister, and he's. I, th I think it's at a restaurant. I'll get the name of the restaurant. We'll post it online. But if you buy a, I think it's a burrito. That particular burrito, a portion of the proceeds go to foster care. And that's what he's donating a portion of his NIL money to as well. 
And uh, what, yeah, what a great story. I mean, in today's, like you said, in, in today's world of overconsumption, um, here's a kid who could have very easily, with all rights, been the greediest of greedy. And he uh, is the first to give. So good for him for doing that. And uh, should make others want to root for him, as you said. And, you know, Nebraska is not what they were when Tom Osborne was there the first go round. He had a second go round there. But uh, I remember Turner Gill was the guy. They had, yeah, they had some. So they often. were dynasties, and they actually, Dave, they had a pipeline to Camden, New Jersey. They had Irving Fryer and Mike Rozier, both were from New Jersey. And those were the two more well-known players, but Nebraska recruited the top guys out of Jersey for years. So that's always been a connection. I have a buddy who was a Nebraska fan just because when you're kids, that's you know, back in the 60s and 70s, you had that couple of games on TV a year, or I'm sorry, a week that you would see, and you latched on for whatever reason. The Huskers, the Sooner, Oklahoma was another one of those teams. Oh, yeah. You know, was, you had Penn State, you had no, obviously around here in, in New Jersey, you had Notre Dame was always on. But but again, the, the great thing there was we, not that we knew any of those players, but it was a, a another po- point of connection that, hey, we have a decent, for considering you're in Lincoln, Nebraska, we have a, a bunch of New Jersey kids going out there to play. So it was always someone we fo- – I always followed them as well. They, they ran the old wishbone back with uh, – I mentioned the name Turner Gill. He was the quarterback when Mike Rozier was there, and they had a high-powered running game. I mean, they just ran it down people's throat, and they were fun to watch. It was like watching uh, a version of the Globetrotters, the way they handled the football back and there. And when they played Oklahoma, Oklahoma ran the wishbone too. So they you had these high-level teams running the option. It was great. It was great to see. Three running backs in the backfield too. And then and I now that was the time when I grew up playing Pop Warner football. And it's funny how even though I was out there in Oklahoma and Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, upstate New York, our offenses were resembling that of Nebraska and Oklahoma. Not quite as high powered, but we still had the three the three backs in the backfield with the quarterback yeah. as a primary runner. So fun style of play. Well, so I I do the high, as we've mentioned on the show, I do color commentary on high school football games here. And in New Jersey, we're, we're starting the playoffs tonight, and I'm doing a game. And the discussion has been, and again, I've coached and then stepped into this role, so I haven't been away from high school football here in New Jersey for 35 years. And really, even though I wasn't coaching when I stopped, uh, when I left college, I was still very in touch with my local high school. So I really have not let it get away from me as far as being a fan and, and being aware of what's going on. And the game has changed so much that when I was playing, the dominant offensive strategies were the wing tee and the various options, whether it was the veer, whether it was the wishbone, the the triple option people call it. There's nuances to it. Nowadays, you do not see those offenses anymore. Rarely. you st- we, we, I will say New Jersey still has some top-level teams Usually, it's the smaller schools that use the wing T. You rarely, rarely see the option. And one of the teams in Morris County this year was a little challenged. And most high schools don't have that, what you would consider prototypical offensive lineman type. And if you have a couple, you don't have, certainly don't have five or six of them. So this one local team, Mendham, decided to go to the option. They really were running the veer, and they had a great deal of success. They beat a couple of teams that they weren't supposed to beat and hung with a couple of other teams. And one of the reasons, Dave, is that when you don't run that offense, 
it's very difficult to prepare for it in practice. It's very difficult to replicate those looks and the speed and the things that those offenses could do. So therefore, when you come into a game, even if you have a good team, and you've we've seen this at the high level in college over the years when Georgia Tech was good, and I think it's ironic that Georgia Tech, when they ran the wishbone, was a top 10 or the option was a top 10 team. They'll never get back in the top 10 again. And our, obviously the academies run it very well. And in a given year, at least one of the teams this year is, our, it's, I believe, our Air Force is the, is the odds-on best team there. It gives, quote, better teams a lot of trouble. And I think what's going to happen here in New Jersey and maybe in other places where enrollment or participation is down, and it's very difficult to run the shotgun spread. You need to have a high level of skill, a lot of practice time, a depth of that skill, and it's not always easy. And actually, it's easy now to defend or easier to defend because everybody runs that. So you you can figure out how to defend it. So this is a long-winded way of me saying if I were to get back into the game and had a team to coach and they needed to kind of rebuild, you have to think the option would be a great option, pun intended. And I, I, I would like to see that come back. I think it will come back, as a matter of fact. Yeah, the, the, the read options in the game now at the pro level even – I've heard that, and you would know better than me, but I, it's, it's obviously very hard to prepare for, but I've heard that the preparation for it, it does affect you in that particular game, but it has even more adverse effect in the following game because you're so ingrained with a certain style of play, and now you're almost inverting your defense, pl- playing a total different style. There's the, the Princeton style of basketball used to do that to people um, because you're you're basically inverting your, your defense to – to handle an offense for one game. And then the very next game, it's hard to recapture those habits right away. And you're, you're forcing guys to play assignment. And in the spread, in my opinion, in the spread, you could be very athletic and have a basic understanding and be somewhat sound, but athleticism could make up for things that you may not be great at or may not be doing properly, whether it's great pressure up front can, and this is not no mystery, but, the, the thing with the option is you're forcing players to be disciplined. And if you feel like you're going to play a team that might not be disciplined, it's an advantage. But also the wear and tear of constantly having to stick to your strict rules is very difficult. And what, what you've seen, what you do see a lot of option, it's just, in my opinion, it's a safer, almost a safer, higher per- percentage of Uh, execution in this zone read where instead of the pitch becoming the option, it's either to hand off or to keep. And that is, it it is an option. It's a form of an option. You're not blocking certain players, blocking other players, and your quarterback is reading that key and deciding what to do. So it's not what we're used to, the old school pitch option, but it is still a big part of the game. And a lot of this wildcat stuff we hear about is based in single wing philosophy, which I also ran. And if you watch the dolphins, the dolphins have more than a few plays in their arsenal that are flat out single wing plays, which are, which are great to see. If you've been on social media, there's been a lot of these cutups of, of what they've done offensively highlighting the really interesting and fun to watch nature of some of these uh, what again are called commonly called wildcat plays, but in reality are really rooted in the single wing offensive philosophy. 
Yeah, he's he's pretty creative out there in Miami. I saw a play last week where um, he threw a like it was a behind the back handoff. They they faked the the reverse and then on an inside handoff behind his back, he hit a guy and because he's left handed, it looked even more weird. But yeah, he comes up with some creative stuff out there. But it sounds like it's rooted in simplicity. Yeah, well, it's and and Mike Leach was great about that in his book. He talked about the basics of the crossing routes and what the concept of someone having to contend with that crossing action. There is a instinctive response we have that crossing viewing and having to deal with things that cross makes the task difficult for us. So that's why a lot of these run and shoot for lack of a better term, five wide, four wide shotgun spread offenses incorporate a lot of crossing routes. Obviously, there's some personnel actual benefits from where you're putting guys on the field, but there's also a benefit that comes from the defensive guys having to process what they're seeing. And again, just the fact that they have to process this crossing is difficult, uh, adds a degree of difficulty to it. Yeah, that's a basic concept in basketball too. You do it against zone defenses all the time. It forces, you think just one guy but you freeze one guy and you force three other guys to have to communicate on the back end of that. But that's uh, interesting. So, and I want to kind of, if you're okay with it, wanted to ask you this, you'd sent me a, uh, through Instagram, we do a lot of communication, you and I, I did not realize there was such an obesity problem with six-year-olds right now that we, we've invented another drug. Well, the fact that you're even seeing people allowing their six-year-olds to be part of these trials where they are using six-year-olds to, to study the result, result, results or the, um, I'm sorry, the responses to them, uh, to the drugs is, is frightening to me. And, and we're, we're, again, we've, the, my philosophy has been this is a bad time to be unhealthy. And if you're an unhealthy adult and you have children and you're passing that unhealthiness, those unhealthy both habits and, and, and traits to the, to the kids were really – going to get into a hole faster than you could imagine that we're not going to be able to dig ourselves out of. Yeah. And I think I know the answer to this, but I, I want to hear how you articulate it. How much of it is monkey see monkey do? Well, how much of what? The, the, the bad habits that these kids develop in terms of their eating. Well, it's all that, But it's all that, but it's a, look, this goes back. I, I've said this, I don't know how much we've talked about it here, but this goes back to the sixties when Weight Watchers came out and targeted women who were otherwise healthy and told them they needed to lose weight. And it's had far reaching effects. My mom is, is in her eighties and is healthy and always was on Weight Watchers. And I'm, as a kid, I'm growing up and she was always, not always, but a lot of the times was always on, was on Weight Watchers. And I go back and I've looked at pictures of the, that period of time and, and there was no reason for her to be on Weight Watchers. So the result of this has been, we have, I'm going to say, if a generation really is defined at 17 years, we've, we've now produced four generations and conservatively three, at least three generations of people who no longer know how to feed themselves and or who forgot how to feed themselves. So this is a problem that we're now in and it, it doesn't get it's not going to get better because the powers that be and if you want to talk about or talk about this, that, oh, we're being conspiratorial. Well, I don't know how you want to discuss it, but when you have the 
public health infrastructure or apparatus, that's a better word, pr- actively promoting things that are unhealthy, such as lower protein consumption, not eating red meat, not eating eggs, uh, no low-fat diet, and then on the other hand, promoting grains and seed oils and, and cereals and that kind of thing. If, if, if me saying that those that diet advice is causing problems, if that makes me a conspiracy theorist, then I will wholeheartedly embrace that title. Yeah. So, and you see that same generation. I think that's my mom, my, my wife's parents as well. They're, um, and I'm not speaking about them specifically, but just that observation that they're constantly looking for that external thing, like that magic diet that creates this ideal health situation, health body. And as a result, maybe this is why the, uh, the engine out there does this. They start relying on the pills and the pharmaceuticals and the other things that, well, the diet, I'm doing it, but I need this extra stuff to, to supplement it. It seems like an ongoing pyramid scheme. Well, there's money to be made in those pills. So that there's no money to be made in me telling you to go back to way, the way we ate 75 years ago, where you're going to have breakfast of some kind of eggs and a piece of toast and a glass of milk and have lunch and have a non-processed lunch meat, whether it's roast beef or, or some kind of chicken salad or your basic, whatever your basic is, you don't have to avoid the bread. The problem is all these processed foods and all the other stuff people eat are just so bad. And the, the easy, you know, even in the people who are trying to help the easy demon as well, eliminate, all carbs and eliminate all bread and eliminate all pasta. And that that's not the solution either. But we've gotten to this point where there is so much confusion that there's no understanding by the general population about a lot of things, but it's spe- specifically about diet. Yep. Lots of money to be made in confusion. That's my one of my favorite lines. And the medical industry does that. I've got a solution possibly. Should I break it out here on, on the air? Sure. So what if we reverse the reimbursement rate for, for medical practitioners, um, for hospitals? So they get paid an awful lot of money for, let's say, bypass surgery, triple bypass, but they get paid very little for com- someone coming in doing a wellness checkup, the healthy person. What if we reverse the scale and said doctors will get paid more because they're the authorities, quote, you know, quote unquote, they're the ones people are listening to. Uh, nine out of 10 doctors, right? They say on every commercial. I want to find out that one doctor who's not, but reverse the reimbursement rate. So they get paid for keeping patients healthy and then they get uh, penalized for that. But there's no money in that. You're not flipping that model. There's, you know, that's, it it sounds great, but I I would be all for that. But that's, it's, people don't, that's why I said you have to start taking care of yourself. We're not going to look at the biggest health problems of the last 50, 60 years. I'm not saying doctors are responsible for responsible for them. Obviously, there's great doctors out there. Modern science, modern medicine is wonderful in many cases, but it's also created a lot of problems. And the nutritional component has nothing really to do with the medical profession. The nutritional component has been hijacked by governmental agencies and other, and the industry. You know, that's what's captured these, these agencies. We see agency capture 
whether it's the EPA, whether it's the FDA, whether it's the F, uh, the Federal Trade Committee, FTC, they're all part and parcel funded by the industry that they're supposed to be policing. So you have to, it goes back to that point. You have to be your own advocate and do your own homework. And in keeping with this concept of we're being told to eat things that are really counterintuitive and, and are run against everything we've done for pretty much all of civilization, this ridiculous beyond meat. I was just going to bring it up. I said, are we seeing evidence of people waking up finally? Yeah, well, it's it's kind of been for a while. I think that was an artificially inflated, propped up product. But the stock price, which has been very low since it's really started, it started to crash almost as soon as it reached its peak. And it looks like if you look at that trend, maybe there were people, there were things done late 2021 to keep it going, but it's been on a precipitous drop, and it, the the stock today is is basically worthless. It was a high of uh, of close to a hundred, or even actually over a hundred, and now it's down to five dollars and seventy six cents per share. So, and and no one wants it. If you go and ask any restaurant, I have a couple of friends I know who own restaurants, and they they had put it on the menu, and I had said to my, my one buddy, I said, well, how is this selling? He said. We don't even offer it anymore. It just was too expensive to reprint the menus. So a lot, and he said a lot of his uh, peers are doing the same thing. They they put a lot of money into thinking it was going to be popular. And not only does it taste bad, and not only is it so processed to make it probably one of the unhealthiest things you can eat, people don't want it. Whereas people still will eat bad food if it tastes good. They can't even make that taste good. That's... That shows you how bad it is, Dave. They can't even make it palatable. Where they make the garbage that fast food makes palatable, and the and what a good cook you would think could do with something like that, they can't even make it palatable. Yeah, and they had I can't remember the place. It wasn't Whataburger, but they had the Beyond Burger. Um, I don't know, t- traditional hamburger place. Uh, we see a lot of them in the southeast. But yeah, I, I what what was the allure? What or what was the pushed? Why was it pushed? It was supposed to be a healthier alternative to. Yeah, it's, it's taking advantage of the the propaganda that meat is bad for you. So here's something that's going to give you all the benefits of meat and none of the negatives. Well, usually when things are, sound too good to be true, they are. And it was also based on a faulty premise that meat's bad for you. So and then you, you see this all the time. And you saw recently where Harvard did a study where they said people who ate red meat had higher chances of getting type two diabetes. And when you look at the data, they had included, you know, people that had high levels of fast food intake as red meat eaters is the same as the person who's eating a steak and having eggs or having a steak or, or something just that's a, a good, plain, unprocessed food. They were mixing that all together purposely to come up with the outcome that made red meat look bad. There's no one in in the in their right mind who actually believes that. And when when you see something like that, it just serves to indicate that that's an outlet not even worth paying attention to because they're agenda driven. They are not concerned with our health. Yeah, I well then to go to go back to my reimbursement model. I was being a little facetious. I, I no way, shape, or form do I think anybody would ever adopt that. There's too much money being made out there for our sick care industry, not healthcare, but with, um, with the, 
with the kind of the propaganda that's put out there with stuff like this, is there any link? You sent me something on raw milk. What, what is what's going on with raw milk? Well, I, to be honest with you, that's something I want to look into more myself. I have read, obviously, there's proponents of raw milk. It's supposedly cleaner. It's not pasteurized. There's not a lot of things in it that uh, are additives. And people swear by it. And there's been the move to ban it and take it out of the supermarkets because it's unhealthy and it's dangerous. Well, we have a lot more dangerous products that are on the shelves that have been on the shelves that will stay on the shelves that the authorities aren't looking to take off. As a matter of fact, they're shutting down raw milk producers in many states saying that it's unsafe. And they're also doing the same with natural meat producers, organic meat producers that are not going through these government approved processing plants that do who knows what and what kind of processing is going on there. So we have an effort that's going on to kind of remove the simplicity of local farming from the food chain. And it's kind of troubling to me. Like I said, I, I, I've heard a lot of great things about raw milk. It's supposed to be more obviously nutritious because of the process of pasteurizing and the other things that do in the, in the, in the processing of milk makes it less healthy. I'd be curious to see what it tastes like. And if I noticed any benefits or any problems, I would like to try it. I'd like to be free to try it and make my own decision. Yeah. You know, if you could go in and get 30 different kinds of vapes and 200 different kinds of flavored cigarette type things and no one's taking those off the shelf but something like whole milk you have the fda moving in concert rapidly to try to get it out of the food supply food chain it's it's very suspicious to me yeah well i was going to bring up the same point you have tobacco products you have alcohol products you have you have uh candy products loaded with sugar and there's aisles upon aisles of those and that we have a lot of farms down here and there, there's a lot of raw milk sold down here and at farmers markets. I don't know. I have to, I'd have to check the, the, the chain stores to see if there's it's sold there or not. I've never really taken a look at it, but yeah, we can get it down here very easily. Simple farms or farmers markets, but with the way they're trying to shut down, as you said, they're, they're coming after some of the organic farmers that, that don't abide. The Amish, by. Our Amish recently have been a target. So for some reason there, and this was the, the, the meat producer that was, shut down it was someone in the amish community who was basically providing food for the local community and people who are smart that live in proximity to the amish take advantage of the fact that their products are available and i believe the amish are more than happy to sell to the outsiders and they're trying to prevent that from happening so again when you look at what we can get that we know is bad for you if you as a matter of fact i noticed this so a, a quick aside, Go, I go to Wawa. That's where I get my coffee. I love they have a good offering. Is everything there 100%? Of course not. No places. Whole Foods doesn't have 100% great offering. It's what you decide to get. That's your choice, right? So your choice is if you want to go into Whole Foods and find something that's unhealthy, you can just as if I could go into Wawa and I could find things that are healthier. So I get my coffee there. And what I've noticed is over the last year or so, 
people who order cigarettes are very buy cigarettes are very specific and very impatient if the clerk doesn't immediately know that uh, so-and-so menthol 100 lights isn't exactly where they're supposed to be when the woman or man turns around to pull it off the shelf. So there must have been some concerted effort because if you go into a Wawa now, all of these different tobacco products have a number on them. So if you go in and you know what you want and you see it, it's number 74, you just tell the person it's number 74 and they can find it easier. So that's the point we're at where you have that many tobacco products that people can buy, and yet we cannot get raw milk where we want it, if we want it in some places, because it it's represents some kind of danger to us. No, that's a good point. Yeah, it's, it's a little backwards, to say the least. And you, you have a heavy, it's a heavy Amish population up in New Jersey? Well, no, but it's, it's close enough in Pennsylvania that we hear a lot, like where, where I went to school in the Lehigh Valley, they were less than a half hour away. So you're in the Lehigh Valley, which which at the time when I went was still, you know, highly industrialized. There were some auto parts plants. There was Bethlehem Steel. There was heavy industry there. And yet you were not that far from very rustic rural areas that there were Amish and there were a couple of other similar religious communities out there. So it's not that would I could probably get to the Amish country from where I live in an hour and 15 to 20 minutes. So it's not far at all. It's close enough that actually people in my area do take trips out there and do buy things that are available that you can't get back here. Yeah, it makes sense. makes sense for both communities to to do that. That's that's what you kind of hope for. We're hoping with all the craziness going on in the world, we can get back to -to peer-to-peer stuff where it's, you know, a neighbor has something you can go trade, buy, whatever it is, without any type of federal interference or statewide interference doing such a thing. Well, um, kept you for 45 today. What else you got on your mind that we haven't covered? I, I think we, we did, again, another tour de force. We did a lot of subjects, touched on things. Hopefully it resonates with people. Hopefully we can, again, make a difference. I know I, know I don't know everything, and when I see something that's interesting, so for me, what I'd like to have, if people have access to raw milk, you say you you know exactly where to find it. I'm I'm still not sure where I can get it. I'm going to look into that, and I want to try to get it because I do have glass of milk almost every day, still whole milk, whether I mix it with my protein powder or I just drink it. So it would be something I would use in either of those ways, and I'd like to just give it a shot. So I would recommend people try it and see if you could tell a difference. I've tried grass-fed beef versus the regular grain-fed beef, and I maybe could take, taste the difference. I think it's somewhat psychological. I also... I can't tell the difference. I can't really tell if it's just a better steak because I could get two steaks from Costco and one could be way better than the other. One could be better than the other. So I don't know if it's it's actually knowable, if you could taste the difference that I, I would probably agree with the point that at some level it could be, be considered better for you, but how much better? And can you actually measure that? Or is there an assumption of it being better? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I tend to venture on the psychological. I can't taste it. My wife says she can, but I just uh, just nod. Collagen in the coffee, though, now, Sal, thanks to you. Yeah. A good way to supplement your daily intake, for sure, yep. especially if you're active and, and you're trying to figure out ways to get protein in your diet. Yep. I've been doing more supplements, actually, since we started the podcast together. 
and uh, I feel less sluggish at times during the day where I used to, uh, and not like I'm just sitting around. I'm, you know, my I'm, I'm active. I'm I'm working out. I'm running practices, so I'm moving. But there were times in the day I'd start to feel sluggish, and so I'm taking the supplements regularly. But it feels a lot better. Yeah, less less of that going on. So. Um, well, next week we'll be at it. We'll have a little bit of an abridged week next week. I won't be here Friday. So we'll be pushing our podcast on a Monday to Thursday schedule with Coach and Kernan, which we'll hope to have you back this week again. You're great, great on that show. Uh, sometime on Tuesday, we'll work out the time. But um, appreciate the effort again. Enjoy the game tonight, calling the, the football game. Are you having fun with that? Love it. I'm, I'm sad that we're coming to the end of the road with high school football here, but I have uh, possibly something up my sleeve for the spring, and I'll keep you posted as soon as I know. Oh, good, good tease. I'm guessing lacrosse, but I won't, I won't, uh, I won't spoil it. I'll let you share with that. But with that audience, thanks so much for your support uh, with this show and all of our shows. Episode three thirty one here on the network. Last year at this time, we had four thousand subscribers. Sal, just a shade under. We're up at fifty five thousand right now. So steady up the t- trend, huh? Obviously, the the, the support is there. They helped our audience help push us onto iHeartRadio, the, the very strong podcast network. And now, like a real group, company, business, we're starting to venture into the marketing side. We have companies that want to partner with us. So we will, uh, we've gone through a gamut with that this whole month. Still, you know, we try to figure it out working on the plane while we fly, but we're, I think we're finally settled on some stuff. We'll actually have two products put out this weekend uh, to our audience. Some of those affiliate products that we had mentioned way back that we had to put a halt on because of our our uh, marketing work that we do with some of our streaming groups that we, we had to won't go into detail with it, but uh, we will have uh, Patriot Cooler and and Blackout Coffee will be put on for our listeners to if they they want to order them, they want to get them, they they can uh, order it through us uh, a code and they'll get a major discount and and we'll get a little bit a little bit of a percentage back to our podcasters. So we hope that those products they're both patriotic products by the way they they value value conservatism. So Sal, thanks again for you. And I got better music to send you out on. Hopefully. Thank you. Hopefully. Well, if you don't like it, I won't, you won't be able to complain to me. Until I'm going to have to be a little more involved in the production here. Okay. You could be the DJ. You could be the DJ. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Have a good weekend, bud.